Hi there. Thanks for joining me on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga and the creator of the Momentum Magic Method, the way to become a confident teacher who seamlessly shares cues and easily creates sequences, whose classes are transformational, not just transactions, who understands anatomy and who shares their passion in a unique and authentic way. On the podcast, you'll hear anatomy lessons, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal growth because having a strong and healthy mindset is such an important piece of being a confident teacher. In addition to the podcast, follow me on Instagram and TikTok for daily videos on teaching topics. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. Hi there. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. My name is Karen Fabian and I'm your host. This is episode 258. I am recording this on September 14th, 2023. This will go live on the 18th and I'm so happy to be here. This has been a really, really busy week so far for me. I don't know how it's been for you. Of course, you'll be listening to this on a Monday or later or at whatever part in your week you're at. Um, I, I do hope that you're having an active, busy September is Sept- September because it is a natural, naturally high energy month with everybody going back to school. And I always, as I said last week on the show, I always love to capitalize on the natural ebb and flow of energy throughout the year. And this time of year, just really use the energy to dive into taking on new projects and really ramping up everything that I do. So today, what I want to start out with, the whole topic for today's show is going to be, today's episode is going to be the concept of teaching safe classes. And this is the sort of thing that actually works really well as an audio lesson, because it's something where it's really kind of a a thinking conversation and it doesn't really require, because we're not going to get into the details of anatomy um, as it relates to this topic. It, It definitely is something that we could do, but I think for this conversation, I'm going to stay not so much at a high level, but at, at more of a, a concept level, more of a conceptual level so that we can start to chip away at, some of the perceptions and beliefs that are out there in the yoga industry that you may hear and that you may believe. And I am not here to change your mind. I am simply here to provide a perspective and you have agency over what you think and what you do. So you ultimately are the one to to know the best approach for yourself. But I think for so many yoga teachers, there isn't anyone sharing another point of view. There's so much ingrained patterning around this particular topic when it comes to language, when it comes to training. And so this is why I want to provide a different perspective because I have a different point of view about this particular topic. And I think the podcast is a perfect platform for me to share it in. What I want to start out with though, is this initial conversation piece that's come up in a lot of calls that I had with teachers this week. And I've said this on the podcast before, 
You may be a yoga teacher that I've talked to on the phone. I actually am part of a business group. <clears throat> and in the group, they can't believe how many conversations I have with people every week. <clears throat> and the conversations are the heart of the matter. It's not about, um, well, let's just say the conversations are the heart of the matter. The conversations I have with teachers allow me to stay really close to the problems, to the challenges, to the wins, to the excitement level, to the challenge level that yoga teachers all over the world are having. And at the end of the day, because my mission is to help more yoga teachers get out there and teach in as most confident and authentic way possible by having the skills that they need so they can show up in that way, because that's my mission, the best way for me to do that is to stay close to source, to stay close to teachers, conversations with teachers. It doesn't like, yes, I have a Facebook ad, but other than that, that's about it. There isn't a lot of technology in my world that supports what I do. There isn't even a lot of people. There's me. There's me sending out emails, running my Instagram and TikTok, and soon to be reviving my YouTube channel. And just getting on the phone and talking to teachers every single week. And this gives me what I believe is a really unique perspective on what yoga teachers are experiencing. And the really interesting thing, and I've said this before, but I'll say it again, the common threads between yoga teachers in terms of the challenges they're facing are so prevalent and it doesn't matter where the teacher lives and it doesn't matter the training they got. And what that says to me is that the messaging in the industry is so loud that it creates these patterns of thinking within teachers. And it's almost like you're trying to put a, um, you're trying to plug a hole in a bucket, but the water keeps pouring in. And so some days that's how I feel. I feel like when I talk to yoga teachers, so many of the conversations I have are around the same themes themes that if the yoga teacher could loosen their attachment to the belief, they could have everything they want in their teaching career and more. But because the voices are so loud to keep ingraining these thoughts in their head, they just kind of say to me, you know what, Karen, I don't have the money, don't have the time, don't think that's going to work for me, blah, blah, blah. And so if you can sort of separate you know, I don't want you to hear this and think this is just about getting teachers to enroll in my program. I want you to just simply look at it from the perspective of thought process, because believe me, you know, like every day when I just watch my local news and they go up with microphones and talk to people, people talk about things and give you a window into the beliefs they have, into the decision-making skills they have, into the thought processes they have. I mean, there's one particular person in the local news right now that's getting a lot of press. And this is a person who's been driving with a suspended license for almost 10 years. And as a result of not having an active license, recently was in a car accident. And when this person was interviewed on the phone or on the news, they knew that they were driving with a suspended license. 
for over 10 years. So when you look at that from a decision-making perspective, and this is a quick example, I don't know this person's story. I don't know why this person would knowingly drive without an active license. I don't know what would cause a person to drive for 10 years without having an active license and knowing they don't have an active license. Like, obviously, maybe there's some other problem there. But the point is, and I'll give you another example. Um, I was recently speaking to someone who makes a lot of money and they were talking about before they made a lot of money and their business was doing well, they would just completely ignore their bank balance. They would go to stores and put their debit card in the debit machine and wonder if it was going to work. And, you know, number one, let it be, let me be clear. I have had scenarios where my debit card hasn't worked because my checking account's been zero. I have experienced that. And yeah, I've even experienced it where, holy shit, I don't have any money in that account. But you can be damn fucking sure that when I came home, I figured out what the hell the problem was. And it was absolutely a surprise. Now I have lived times in my life where I refuse to look at my bank balance, where I refuse to take responsibility for my finance, where finances, where I refuse to be responsible about my spending habits. That is living in a dream world. That is not being a good decision maker. And so this is what I mean about, you know, we always are showing windows into our way of thinking around even just simple decision-making. So as I bring this back, this conversation back to yoga teaching, many times when I had conversations with teachers this week, they sort of, the, the, the basic premise of the conversation or the flow of the conversation was, I have ABC problems. In order to solve ABC problems, I'm doing D, E, and F. I believe that D, E, and F is going to solve problems A, B, and C, but I'm not sure, and I'm spending hours a week trying to do D, E, and F to maybe solve problems A, B, and C. And so then when I speak to the teacher and I say, okay, I hear what you're attempting to do. Let me share with you why that approach may not work. Why in my experience, I've seen this approach done before and it may not work. And I share that. Teacher says, no, digs their heels in. I, I really want to try it. Okay, great. Try it. The challenge with this approach is that the longer you are in a problem state as a teacher, the longer you don't feel confident, the longer you try to figure it out on your own, the longer you don't have time to prep for your classes, the longer you spend hours prepping for your classes and your family's like, where's mom on Sundays every Sunday? The longer these problems continue, the deeper the mindset thoughts that go along with these problems embed themselves in your mind. I'm not really saying brain because I guess you could make a case for case for it on the neuroscience side of things, but let's just talk about it from a mindset perspective. So mind is a little different from the neurology of the brain. Although you could definitely make a case for that as well. The longer you go and you just keep trudging along, the harder it is when you actually do try maybe a solution 
to separate yourself from the negative thoughts that you developed along the way. Case in point, one of the teachers who enrolled in my program is having a lot, one of the motivations was that she has a lot of self-doubt. Now, when she enrolled in the program and began to watch the videos and, and when she enrolled, she was at a point where she wasn't teaching and then she began to teach. As she began to teach, she was having a lot of panic attacks, like real, just, you know, having that feeling of I'm not good enough. I'm worried about going into class. And these were thoughts she had before. Now, enrolling in my program isn't going to magically make those thoughts go away because the longer you're out there by yourself, the longer those patterns of thinking become ingrained in your mind. And it's not that it takes the same amount of time to debunk them in your mind and put some positive thought patterns in its place. It's just that it doesn't happen overnight. And this is what I mean about decision-making. I give yoga teachers full credit to say, yeah, go, go ahead, try to figure it out on your own, more power to you. But from a decision-making perspective, set a time limit for yourself. I mean, at a minimum, say to yourself, you know what? I'm going to try it on my own for 30 days. And if I'm still at the same place in 30 days, I'm going to go out and get some help. Because honestly, if you come to me or another teacher with a program that you feel can help you in a year or two years, it's so much harder to not only fix the problem, but change the mindset that goes along with it. And believe me, that mindset is oftentimes the thing that drives teachers to do things like, oh, I'll retake my 200 hour. Oh, I'll take a 300 hour. Oh, I'll take a 500 hour. I mean, I get a lot of those emails too. In fact, I get teachers that ask for my free resources after they graduate from a 200, a 300 and a 500. And it's like, what is happening here? You're spending all this money on this quote unquote training. And at the same time, you're looking for help around basic skills like sequencing and queuing. Do you see what's not working here? What doesn't make sense? And so this is why from a decision-making process, I encourage you to sit with yourself and be really clear with yourself about where you're at, what your mindset is, what your dream vision is, and how it's going. And if you can honestly say, great, I'm on top of it, perfect, great. If you feel like things are not firing on all cylinders, give yourself a time frame before you reach out to me or somebody else and ask for help. But to just continue to try to solve the problem yourself is not a good decision. And this is where we go back to that Einstein quote, the, you know, it's difficult to solve a problem at the level of thinking that created it. If left to your own devices, it's really hard. So. The bottom line with that story and that part of the conversation today is that time is a variable that you can use to help you or to hurt you. You know, when you think about investing your money, when you invest your money, the younger you are, the more you use time to your advantage 
to uh, have that investment grow. I mean, investing your money conservatively gives you a return of eight to 10% in the stock market. So eight to 10% over multiple years will give you much better returns than just putting your money in a savings account, even a high yield savings account. Matter of fact, I just heard about one today on the Tim Ferriss podcast that has a four point something uh, interest rate, which is really good for a high yield account. So in that scenario, you're using time to your advantage. But when you have a problem that you ignore or deny or deflect, like the examples I gave before, the putting the credit card in the machine and hoping it works, that's where you're using time to harm yourself. You're not leveraging time. Time is sort of leveraging you. And so if you want to be, and this is a metaphor I use a lot, if you want to be in the driver's seat of your life, so we're not just talking yoga teaching here because I'm giving you other examples about finances and savings and you know uh, all, all these other things. If you want to be in the driver's seat of your life, using time as your advantage is almost like a secret hack that a lot of people don't talk about. Like, I'll give you another example. I spoke to someone today um, about a business problem and they're not getting a lot of responses from their potential customers, but they have a lot of infrastructure built in their business, a lot of stuff. And at the end of the day, continuing to invest in all these bells and whistles isn't making any of these customers talk to them. But there's this feeling like, oh, well, I'm doing all these things and that makes me feel like I'm doing stuff. But if I'm not actually hearing from customers, I don't really know if what I'm offering is even something they want. And so this is why we can sort of trick ourselves into thinking, well, I'm going and I'm teaching class and I'm writing out all these sequences and I'm pulling out that pile of books and I'm signed up for a 300 and blah, 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 blah. That must be solving the problem, right? And that's what I mean about sit with yourself and have a real conversation. And if you want some help with that, just send me a DM, tell me you heard this episode and I'm happy to brainstorm with you. So now that we've talked about that, let's transition into the topic for today's episode. So for today's episode, we are going to be talking about teaching safe classes, because this is something that even though I've covered it in a past episode, I always sort of adjust my approach a little bit, depending on my own level of knowledge, different conversations I've had. So it's definitely, um, even if you listen to that past episode, it's still good to have the conversation again. And furthermore, the reason I'm having it again is because I just keep hearing it so much. I wanna teach safe classes. I wanna teach safe classes. So let's first start out with a number of premises because it's really important. You know, you can call them beliefs, you can call them premises, um, either is fine, but let's, because we first need to get on the same page in terms of what do we really think here? What do we really, and it's not just think, what do we really believe? Because when someone says to me, I wanna teach a safe class, that is for me a window into what they think. What they say, I wanna teach safe classes, is a window into what they think. And so I'm gonna read off some of these premises and I want you to 
in your own mind, see what comes up for you when you hear these. The first one is people can get hurt doing yoga. So you can sort of think of that as a true or false or a yes, no, or a yes, no, or maybe. So people can get hurt doing yoga. So let's just spend a moment or two on each one of these as I run through them. So the, the reality is, yes, people can get hurt doing yoga. So we're, we're going, you know, I think one of the premises that we need to kind of lay out there is that, yes, there is a possibility you may have gotten hurt. I certainly have developed some shoulder tendonitis from doing way too many up dogs um, and other, and other external rotation focused poses. So I think that's one of the things that we need to understand, like right off the top in this conversation, people can get hurt doing yoga. It's not that it's baked in and is guaranteed, but it can happen. So I think we need to first agree that it is possible. Okay. And so when someone says to me, I want to teach safe classes. Part of what I think is that they think there is a scenario where they can teach in a way where no one's going to get hurt and they can control that. So that's why I'm bringing that example up. Premise number two, there is something inherent about yoga that makes it risky. Um, yeah, there is something inherent. There's something baked in, built into yoga that makes it risky. Let what comes up for you when you hear that? All right. And sometimes it can help it to compare it to something else. Is there something built into yoga that makes it more risky than running or more risky than weightlifting or more risky than um, CrossFit? Or is there something specific to yoga poses, specific to the way yoga is taught? What about different yoga styles? You know, is there something built into yoga, something about yoga? Because if we look at it from a high level and we zoom out, we say it's movement. Matter of fact, it's not even movement with resistance because in the traditional sense of resistance being using a weight, an external force on the body, there isn't really any of that. So in a way it's less risky than other forms of exercise where you're bringing, where you're adding external resistance. So again, you know, overarching this entire conversation is that there's no right or wrong. And so this is going to challenge you to appreciate nuance. And unfortunately, the yoga industry does not oftentimes teach nuance. It teaches yes, no binary type things, but that is just not a realistic way at looking at human beings on a piece of mat moving their bodies. There's a lot of nuance in that. The next thing is the risk of getting hurt outweighs the benefits. So that's one of the things we want to look at too. Well, if we think that yoga is risky and there is a high degree of injury, does the chance of that injury happening outweigh the benefits of yoga? And I'm sure you would agree there's lots of benefits of yoga. So even if you were to believe that yoga is inherently risky, well, what's the rate of injury? Does it outweigh the benefits? Does it mean injuries are going to happen all the time? Are they bad injuries? Or are they good injuries? So, I mean, are they bad injuries or like really severe injuries or less severe injuries? So you can begin to see how a lot of these premises really don't hold water. 
The next one, some poses are riskier than others. Well, is that true? Are, is a crow pose riskier than a warrior one? Well, doesn't it depend on how you look at the risk? Are you talking risk to tendons, risk to muscles, risk to bones, risk to joints, risk to, I don't know, the face? Like if you fall out of crow, you might crack your nose. You know, like, so, you know, is that, is that something that's true? What comes up for you when you hear that? The next one, um, knowledge prevents injuries. And related to that, the amount of hours or training that I have as a teacher is going to prevent injuries. That's a really interesting one. And that oftentimes, this is why these beliefs can be so sinister. They can cause us to do things. They can cause behaviors in our attempt to solve the problem the belief brings up. So in other words, if I believe as a yoga teacher that the more hours of training I have, the safer classes I will teach, that will cause me, that will cause a behavior where I am constantly signing up for training. And guess what? <laughs> People might still get hurt in my classes. And then what, am I, then what have I got left? I've got the money and the hours I've spent and still people are getting hurt in my classes. Now what's the problem? So this is what I mean when I said at the beginning about decision-making. We've got to be able to see those beliefs as the drivers of not great behavior in a lot of situations. And that's why when I work with yoga teachers, a huge part, not a huge part, but part of what I focus on is mindset. Because if we don't get to the beliefs, we won't be able to change the behaviors. But interestingly enough, it's not like I meet with the teacher and go, hey, what are your beliefs about yoga teaching? I'll basically just say, tell me a little bit about the problems you're having right now. What are some things that you're doing as a teacher that you don't want to be doing? Or what are some things you want to do as a teacher that you feel like you're not doing right now? Whatever angle I use to come at it, what will inevitably come up are the actions the teacher is taking. And when the actions are stated to me, that is a window into a belief the teacher has. So this is a perfect example of that. If I believe the number of hours I have after my name is going to decrease the risk to my students, then I'm going to be in endless training. And guess what? My brain is going to explode when people tell me that they tore their hamstring, not tore their hamstring, um, I don't know, tweaked their neck or tweaked their back in my class, because then I'm going to be like, what do you mean? I took all the, I have 500 hours after my name. So that's that one. So now that we've talked about some of these premises and notice I'm not saying what's right or what's wrong. I'm basically just sharing these premises as an opportunity for you to test yourself and see what premises do you have? What comes up for you when you think about these particular premises? So let's get into the actual conversation about safe classes. So for this conversation, I drew a chart. I have on one side, things I can control. And on the other side, things I can't control. And the overarching topic here is, is there such a thing as teaching a safe class? So let's look at the things that I can't control. If you look at things through the lens of Stoic wisdom, the Stoics were back in the Roman times, a group of philosophers that baked into their philosophy was the strong belief that 
we we need to focus on the things we can control in order to be productive. It's when we spend so much time focusing on things we can't control that we have a lot of despair and grief and we don't make progress in our lives. And I very firmly believe in that, especially in this age of social media, where there are so many things that we can't control about how, how people perceive what we do. But especially as yoga teachers, there's a lot of things we can't control. So let's first take a look at but people will tell you, you can't control them. So that's why I bring that up. So let's talk about the things you can't control. You can't control if someone gets hurt in your class. You can't. If someone comes in and they tweak their ankle, tweak their hamstring, pull a muscle in their neck, there is nothing you can do to prevent that. In large part, because you know very little or nothing about that person's body and you're working with them in a group situation. So part of what we need to, I don't want to say agree on, but something for you to think about, especially if this is a hot button topic for you, is the premise that you think you can prevent someone getting hurt in your class. Because I promise you, my friend, once you appreciate that you really can't prevent 100% someone getting hurt in your class or not, you, it will be like you just dropped a hundred pound weight off your shoulders. Because so much, this is again, belief drives behavior. So much of what teachers do, all the machinations they go through, practicing with their class, practicing their sequence, doing the whole practice with them, you know, all of these machinations, writing out sequences comes from a belief that the more I do, the more I can prevent them from, quote, getting hurt. So that is what I mean about belief driving behaviors. And you're just like out there, the, the, dog, the tail is wagging the dog. You are being driven by your belief. You are not in the driver's seat of your life, my friend. You are being driven by your belief to do all these things when instead imagine you appreciated, you accepted, this is higher level thinking, you accepted that there is an inherent risk in yoga and anything else. I'm teaching a group of people that I really don't know a lot about. And yeah, there's a chance people are gonna get hurt. So that, I haven't even gotten to all the stuff you can control. We're on the part you can't control. But this is really super important because once you let that belief begin to seep in, you will free yourself of a whole bunch of pressure and it will allow you with all that new revived energy to focus on the stuff you can't control, which I'll get to in a minute. So number one, can't control if someone gets hurt. Number two, you can't control what people tell you about their body. You can't you know, people may come to class. I've had lots of people come to class and they end up passing out and maybe not lots of people, but occasionally I've had people pass out in my classes um, and I'll go up to them and I'll, in the moment, you know, call 911, the whole nine yards, or maybe they don't pass out completely. They're dizzy and come to find out they're hypoglycemic. They didn't eat before class. They're hungover. They just got off a plane. Those are three examples I can think of that have happened to me over the past 20 years. 
These are people who didn't come into my class saying, hey, by the way, I'm diabetic and I haven't eaten in eight hours, but I thought it'd be a good idea to come take a yoga class heated to 90 degrees. They didn't tell me that. If they had told me that, I would have given them some Gatorade before or whatever else I would have done. This is what I mean, my friend. We can't know what we don't know, so we can't control for the variable. The next thing, uh, having the knowledge about every medical situation or injury situation a student might present with. There is no way, there is no amount of books, no amount of courses, no amount of time, no amount of life, no amount of knowledge of anatomy that I can ever absorb that will ever prepare me for any possible scenario that a student's going to present me with. So I can't control for that. So there is, it's kind of, again, like the dog chasing the tail. So these are things I can't control. So let's now talk about what can I control? I can control the sequence I share. If I think of the container of the class, it is the sequence. The literal container is the room. The subcontainer is the sequence. I can control what I offer. This is why I beg of you, stop changing your sequences all the time. Stop changing your sequences all the time. Release yourself of the belief that your students will get bored. Hell, release yourself from the belief that you'll get bored. Yoga does not exist to keep you interested, my friend, nor does it exist to keep your students interested. If they want entertainment, they can watch Netflix. If you want to control a variable that has a direct impact on the student's experience and the experience in their body, which you could make a case for decreasing risk and decreasing the frequency of injury, stop changing your sequence all the time. Teach the same thing until you know it and can teach it with your eyes closed on one leg with one arm tied behind your back, standing backwards. That's what you can control. And if you're willing to do it, if you're willing to challenge the beliefs you may have to the contrary, you will possibly decrease some injuries. But again, you're not there to do it for that reason in particular. But know that there is, there is um, I don't want to say an assumption, but there is a connection we can make to a well-presented sequence potentially being less risky than one that is a sequence the teacher doesn't know because maybe you could make the case for the teacher is less skilled at presenting it. The teacher is less skilled at cueing it. Again, things the teacher can control for. So that's number one. Next thing you can control, the cues you use. This of course goes with the sequence, goes with the idea of teaching a similar sequence from class to class. When you teach a similar sequence from class to class, you get really fucking good at how to cue it. In fact, you can anticipate cues you need to use because you've taught it so often, you know the alignment problems that are probably going to come up. So like how I teach, I say, you may notice X, Y, Z, do A, B, C instead in this pose. 
That's what I mean about you're owning what you can control. And guess what? One of the really nice advantages is you might be preventing some injuries, but when you constantly pull the rug out from underneath you and change your sequence all the time, you never give yourself the chance to do this. And, you know, I don't want to say ultimately that hurts your students, but you can kind of know where I'm going there. It does negatively impact your students. When in reality, and here's the irony, we think it's helping them because we think they're quote unquote bored, which is complete bullshit. Okay, next thing. Things I can control, my knowledge of anatomy. I mean, this is the most obvious one. And at the same time, oh my God, if I could tell you how many times I talk to teachers and in the same conversation, they say, I want to teach safe classes. I know I don't understand anatomy, but no, I'm not ready to enroll or no, I don't want to enroll or no, I don't want to spend the money. Do you see how there's such a conflict there? So this is what I mean, like to knowingly be teaching yoga and not understand what are anatomical movements, describing the joints, what are the muscles, where do they originate and insert, what actions do they do, what are different concepts in action like agonist, antagonist, and to not be able to speak to those things immediately and with clarity is, and I dare say it, being out of integrity as a teacher. It is your primary responsibility, and I sort of don't want to compare it to yoga philosophy as a juxtapose, but I'm just saying it's right up there. It's right up there at the top and it links directly to this whole conversation. I mean, if safety and anatomy don't fit in the same bucket, what else does? So this is why I say, and I implore you, if you're listening to this and you know you don't understand anatomy and you want to teach safe classes, well, the path is clear, my friend. You got to fill in that learning gap. So just send me a DM, tell me you heard this episode and we'll fix the problem. The next thing, um, your un things you can control, your understanding of range of motion. Range of motion is an anatomical movement parameter that is used to measure joint movement. And it is absolutely something that we can control as it relates to the sequences we offer and how we present the postures. And it absolutely relates to more of a challenge or less of a challenge from the student in doing the pose. And it absolutely could potentially increase the risk of doing a particular posture. So a, 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 an example of that might be if I teach warrior two extended side angle, warrior two half bind, warrior two full bind, or warrior two full bind to bird of paradise. As I move through the progression of that pose, the range of motion required from the upper shoulder, the arm that's bound behind the back, increases and the torque on the joint increases and the strength required of the external rotators increases. And then you layer on top of that, the fact that most people posturally are internally rotated most of the time, then the risk goes up, the more ROM demand on the joint. All of what I'm talking about lives within the knowledge base of anatomy. 
And so this is why if you're hearing this and you're like, what the hell is she talking about? Ding, 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 red flag, do not pass go, send me a DM, let's fill in your anatomy knowledge gap. And I'm not joking here. This is like serious shit. So even if you, I mean, I'm not gonna say even if you don't care about teaching safe classes, because of course everybody wants to teach a safe class. That's a silly question. But even if you don't say, I wanna teach safe classes and it's not high on your list, you can't shirk that responsibility. The whole story about your 200 hour didn't teach you anatomy, you didn't learn it, you don't think you know it, you don't have a science background. All of that is beliefs. All of that is beliefs, none of that is fact. Okay, next one, things I can control. My awareness, how well I see the students. And you know where I'm gonna go here if you've been listening to anything, but you know even just one or two shows, you know this ties to whether or not you practice with your class. If I want to decrease the risk to my students, you can be damn sure I am going to look at them. And if I'm in downward dog, I can't see them. If I have my mat sideways, I can't see them. If I'm way up in my head and nervous, I can't see them. If I'm having a panic attack, I'm not present. So this is what I mean. The seeing, the seeing is in the, is in building, the seeing allows me to build connection. And again, you can make a case that it decreases risk simply because I can see what's happening. So this is all of the things I can control. The sequence I share, the cues I use, my knowledge of anatomy, my understanding and range of motion, my awareness, and how well I see the students. So the bottom line, is that when you shift your belief, and that's what we talked about at the beginning of this topic, when you shift your belief that there is a safe class model and safety in general, the theme of safety, when you shift that belief from wherever you are right now on it, you know, I don't know what the range is for you or how strongly you believe there is such a thing as a safe class. When you're willing to shift that belief and instead take that energy, take that psychic energy. I want to teach safe class. I want to teach a safe class. And instead focus that energy on controlling the things you can control. You're going to create a safer experience for your student. And guess what? It's going to be a better experience for them because you're going to see them because you're going to know the damn cues because you're going to be teaching a sequence you can do with your arm tied behind your back. And you know what that allows you to do? It allows you to be there for the shit you can never fucking imagine is going to come up in your class. Like the person that passes out, like the person that asks the question, like the person that's sitting in the middle of the room doing their own thing. And you need to now rein that person in. There are so many things you can't control that will come up. And when you have a situation where you're teaching a sequence, you don't know, you're trying to just get through the damn class just teaching the damn sequence. And so if there's six other things that pop up, the music goes out, the lights go out, whatever it is, you're screwed. So this is what I mean about, let alone the heart of the matter, which is we wanna teach a sequence we know well so we can benefit the student. But it's also so that we have ample energy to deal with all the shit that's gonna come up that we didn't expect. And guess what? So that when we leave class, we can live our life. 
and we don't rehash the class in our mind and we don't beat ourselves up for what we could have done. We go in, we teach it, we go out, we go home, we get on with our day, we live our life, we go in and teach in the next class. There's no panic, there's no fear. And all of this ties back to what I said at the very beginning, which is that way of being that I just described as a teacher. I want you to imagine what would be possible for you if that's the way you were teaching. But the longer you try to figure it out for yourself, the harder you make it to get that vision to be your reality because you just ingrain these negative patterns of thinking and belief beliefs into your way of being that drive these negative behaviors that make teaching feel so tough. So I'm going to end this episode with this call out. And this may or may not be a call out to you as you're walking the dog, making your dinner, driving your car, listening to this as you're getting uh, uh, ready for, for the end of your day. Wherever you are at this moment listening to me, I want you to see if this resonates with you. Because if you are one of the teachers or the type of teacher I just described, what I call the figuring it out on my own kind of teacher, if that is you, I want you to DM me the words podcast 258, because this is episode 258. Tell me you listened to this episode. Tell me you are the type of teacher who's trying to figure it out on their own. And I'll see if you are a yoga teacher that I can help out of that way of being into a more productive, a more joyful, a happier and easier way of teaching where you know you're making an impact and where you can integrate your yoga teaching into your life in such a way that it's a beautiful blend into everything else you do and every other way of being that you are. And in addition, you teach yoga and you love it and you're making an impact in your community and you're loving what you're doing. So that is the end of this week's episode. I wanna thank you so much for listening. I can't wait to do the next episode for you. Between now and then, have a wonderful week and I will talk to you on the next episode of Conversations for Yoga Teachers. Namaste. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And as a special thanks, DM me the words podcast offer, and I'll share with you a special opportunity for yoga teachers who are ready to be confident and skilled and drop all the prep time you most likely are doing, getting ready for class, drop practicing with class, and instead do what I call the walk and talk, drop using the same cues over and over, and drop worrying what other people think. If this is you and you're ready to step into your most powerful, authentic way of teaching, just DM me the words podcast offer on my Instagram, and I'll tell you how I can help you.